faithful God, even in the midst of the trials and the storms. The year I've been your pastor, a lot of you have been through a lot of trials. There have been a lot of storms going on in the life of the body this year, haven't there, in terms of sicknesses and passing of loved ones, just trials people have been going through. And what a great reminder you've just given us of how we can be thankful that God is still on his throne and he is still God. I do hope you'll be back tonight because we have a chance to do that, not just through song this morning, but in our Thanksgiving dinner tonight. This is a chance to give praise to God for what he's done. A lot of times we think of giving praise to God for where we've seen prayers answered the way we want them answered. But tonight's a chance to be reminded that God is God, even in the midst of the storms and the trials, that God is still working. So many of you this year have given testimony to me and told me about in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trials, how you have seen God move in your life and in your family. And that's some of the things we want you to share tonight. So don't come tonight thinking, I don't have anything to share. Not only share the meal, but we want to give you a chance to give praise to the Lord. And even if it's been in a trial, that you've seen God still in a stone on the trial, we want you to have a chance to share that tonight. So be thinking this afternoon, how can you give God praise tonight for what he's done in your midst? And we look forward to hearing that and encouraging one another with that. Well, this morning we're continuing our, gospel, our, our journey through the Gospel of John. We're in John 12 again this morning as so we come to the end of John chapter 12. As we think about John 12 this morning, I want to begin by just reminding us that words can be very, very polarizing. People can respond very differently to the same words that they hear. We've seen that in the news over the last month or so in terms of politics. A particular politician will say something to defend himself, and some people respond with, let's just kill the guy, and other people are like, no, 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 he's got to be innocent. And you see this back and forth, not just here in Alabama, across the country. Words of a politician can be very, very polarizing. Same people, there's different people here, the same words end up with totally, radically different responses. Same thing happens in terms of sporting and football and other, and other sports. You'll hear a coach really struggling through a season. It comes to the end of the season. He gives his reasons and explanation why the team's not doing well and how they're going to do better next year. And some people are ready to basically call for his head. They're like, you know, I'm done with him. We need a new coach. And other people are like, no, no, no. He's pretty loyal. Let's stick with him. You have very polarizing words. People hear the same thing and respond very differently. But friends, that happens in the church as well. You'll have someone open up in one of their small groups about a struggle they're having in their life. And some people are like, no way, I don't want to be around them. I don't want to be around someone dealing with that. And they turn and they walk away. Well, other people love the honesty and are drawn to that. That one word, that one testimony of someone's struggle can be so polarizing on those things. And so the reality, though, is in all those examples I'm mentioning, you can respond either way. They can be polarizing. But a lot of people just kind of shrug their shoulders. It doesn't really affect them personally. So they really just don't care. And they don't end up on either extreme. But, friends, when we come to the words of Jesus today, what we're going to hear from Jesus and Jesus say is a lot more polarizing than anything any politician has said, any coach has said, or anything anyone's opened up in the church about. But unlike those situations, you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, I don't care to what Jesus says. Because how you respond to these words that Jesus is going to speak is going to be very, very personal for you because it's going to affect you in a lot of ways. Because how you respond to Jesus' very polarizing words are going to show that you're either being repulsed by his words or you're being drawn by his words. There is no indifference, there's no middle ground. We're either going to be repulsed by the words of Jesus or drawn to the words of Jesus. So again, find John chapter 12 if you're not there yet. And as you're finding it, I just want to remind you where we are. We're in the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. These are just days before what we celebrate on Good Friday. He's returned to Jerusalem. Palm Sunday's already happened. We've already waved the palm branches singing Hosanna. We've already seen all that occur. This is now in those days after that. And there's also a time of much disbelief. We've seen the crowds wanting Jesus for who they want him to be, not who he really is. And we saw as Jesus begins to address them last week in John chapter 12, we saw that Jesus presents to them in his final public address to them that everything is about the glory of God. That Jesus came to die for the glory of God. That's what's most important. Last week when we saw the Father and the Son talking, what do they talk about? 
They talk about the glory of God. And so as we continue in John 12, Jesus is still speaking. As we finish out this chapter, Jesus is addressing the crowd. And friends, this is his final words to the public before his crucifixion. His final words before the crucifixion, starting next week in John 13 and going all the way through John 18. He's talking just to his disciples. So what is Jesus going to say that's the last thing that's so important to say to these crowds before he addresses them no more? Now, let me remind you today, this crowd that he is speaking to is the crowd who's seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's the crowd who's seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Word has spread throughout all these things. They've heard his authoritative teaching, but it's a crowd that despite seeing miracle after miracle, hearing this teaching, seeing a dead man come back to life, still for the most part does not believe. Jesus is speaking to a crowd full of unbelief. And what are the final things that he's going to say to them before, before he turns his focus to his disciples for a few days before his death and burial and then resurrection? So as we come to John 12, I want you to look for two things as we're reading this morning. First of all, what are Jesus' last words? To the, to the public here. Jesus' last words are important. You can think about that in lots of venues. Last words carry importance. What is the most important thing he could share with this crowd before he no longer addresses them? And then how are people to respond to that? So what are Jesus' last words and how are people to respond to that? So as we come to John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 35 and read to the end of the chapter. I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. John chapter 12, starting in verse 35 here. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him. On the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning as we look at these words of the Lord Jesus, I pray they would come alive to us. God, help us understand how we're to respond to the words of the Lord Jesus. Give us insight. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, there there are tough things in this text. And I pray this day that you give me clarity to speak to them. I pray you give us all ears to hear them. And I pray you you would stretch us through this, Lord, to understand how glorious you are, how big you are. And Lord, for those in this room who do know you, who hear your words, who treasure your words, who love your words, would you this morning instill in their heart even deeper thankfulness for your grace has enabled them to love you so and to hear your words. 
But Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is repulsed by your words and turned away by your words, God, would you this morning in your kindness to them remove the scales from their eyes that keep them from seeing your beauty and your glory. And I pray your word would come alive to them this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated there. As we think about John chapter 12 this morning, there's one thing I want you to see. And it's simply this. Jesus' words either repel us into the darkness or draw us into the light. Jesus' words will either repel us into the darkness or draw us to his lights. Friend, there's no middle of the road here. When we hear the word of Jesus, and let me remind us, his word is Genesis to Revelation. The whole Bible is Jesus' word to us, not just the things that appear in red if you have a red letter translation. All the Bible is Jesus' words to us. When we hear his words from Genesis to Revelation, it's going to do one of two things. It's either repel us into the darkness, we'll be repulsed by it, or we're going to be drawn into his light. There, the Puritans had an interesting saying. They said, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. And think about that. You put out on a hot summer Alabama day, you put out a block of, of muddy kind of wet clay, and you put out a big block of ice. The same sun does two radically different things. For the clay, it dries it up. It starts to crack, and it starts to break in the heat. But that block of ice begins to melt in the heat. Same sun. Nothing changes in the sun. Just the two things respond very differently to that. Friends, that's what Jesus' words are like. The same people can be sitting in a room like this and hear Jesus' words. And for some of them, his words melt the ice of their heart. Life comes into them. They melt in his presence because they've fallen in love with him. And other people hear the exact same words and they start to shrivel up and the clay begins to break. Jesus' words will either repel us in the darkness or draw us to the light. With that said, today's account is a pretty sad account because it's an account of the clay hardening. It's an account of people turning away from the Lord again and seeing people blinded in their sin and their darkness. We see Jesus' words repelling people in this account today. Today's account also is a fairly tough account. There's things in here that stretch us, particularly in our American thinking of equal opportunity. There's some things in here that that really kind of can make us uncomfortable in some ways. But friends, that's again why we preach through books of the Bible. This is probably not the text that most of you are going to pick and be like, man, I want to go to John 12. I really love this. my favorite text. But we work verse by verse through the Gospel of John because it confronts us with the totality of who God is and his bigness and his grace, and we see more of him. And so, friends, even though we come to tough things in John 12, even though we come to some sad things in John 12, friends, it was given for our good. Remember why John was was written, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believe we might have life in his name. Friends, John 12, though there's some tough things in here and there's some sad things in here, it's for our good that we might believe and that we might find life in the midst of the toughness and the sadness of some of the things in this text. So let's think about this, how Jesus' words either repel us into darkness or draw us to his life. Let's start with the idea of Jesus' words. What are so important about Jesus' words here? What is the big deal, especially about all he said, but particularly about what he's saying right here? Why is this so important and why is this so polarizing to people? Well, the answer is in verses 49 and 50. So we'll actually start at the end of our text this morning. And these are Jesus' final words. These are the last two things he speaks to the public before his crucifixion. So listen to what Jesus says that's so important that he's going to leave them with. Verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So what's the last thing he chooses to leave with them? Man, you're such awesome people. Go get them. Think great thoughts. You're going to get them. No. What's the last thing Jesus tells the crowd? He says, my words are not really my words. They're the Father's words. I'm the messenger. I'm telling you what the Father has said. He's saying the Father has commanded me exactly what to say. You can look at verse 50. And what is it that he has been speaking of? 
And I know that his, the Father's commandment, is eternal life. At the close of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's saying, I've obeyed. I've shared the Father's words with you. I've pointed you to eternal life. I've shown you what eternal life is by pointing you to the very words of the Father. We see this idea repeated in verses 44 and 45 as well of this relationship of Jesus and the Father and what he came to do. Look at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. It says Jesus was crying out. This means in the Greek that he was speaking incredibly loudly because it's so important. He's speaking loudly because there's something so important. And what is so important for the people to hear? One of these final words he gives to them, that Jesus and the Father are one. Friends, when we hear the words of Jesus, we are hearing the words of the Father. When you hear the words of Jesus, you're hearing the words of Yahweh, of Jehovah, of the Creator, of the great I Am. And friends, that's not something for us to take lightly. It's not something for us to shrug our shoulders at. When the great I am who spoke the universes into being speaks to us, we need to take that seriously. Well, these words are also really serious for us to consider for another reason. And look at verses 47 and 48. Because his words are the standard that will judge us as well. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Again, notice how unbelief is described here. Unbelief is not described as, well, you never prayed the prayer and joined the church and got baptized. Unbelief here is described as a not keeping of the words of Jesus. Not obeying the words of Jesus. Not receiving his words. Not keeping them. Obedience. There's an equation here of unbelief with rejection, and that's ultimately tied to not obeying what Jesus has spoken here. So friends, I just need to give us a very sobering reminder. It doesn't matter if we've prayed a sinner's prayer, walked an aisle, gotten baptized, joined a church, served in church leadership. If there is no desire in our heart to obey the words of Christ, we are not in Christ. And we're fooling ourselves if we think our spiritual soul is okay because of all these things that we have done. If there's no pull in our heart to draw us to the words of Jesus, there's no longing for his words and no desire in our heart to obey his words. Friends, we are not a follower of Christ no matter how many external things we have done. And Jesus says very soberly here that these people will be judged by his words. The very words of Jesus that we reject will be the very words that people will be judged by. Jesus' words will either repel us in the darkness or draw us to the light. What's the difference? Why are some drawn and why are some repulsed by it? And it's a matter of whether or not we believe. It's a matter of whether or not we believe or follow him. If we believe in him, his words are sweet to us. If we believe, they draw us. They point us to him. If we don't believe, we're offended by his words and they push us further into the darkness. And that's what happens in this text for many here in this passage, that many of them are repulsed by Jesus' words into darkness. And look at what happens for those who are repulsed by him. Look at verse 46. It says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, notice that word remain there, friends. If we do not believe in Christ, we're not headed for darkness. We're already in darkness. We already remain in darkness. It's a theme in John that those who don't believe already are under judgment. They already are in darkness. Just like we've seen throughout John, that those who believe already have eternal life now. And friends, the sobering reality is loving darkness is the natural position of every single one of us. 
apart from God's grace. It's where all of us starts. We're not born good, loving the light. We are born sinners who hate God, loving the darkness and already in the darkness until God comes and rescues us when we believe that Jesus is the light. Look at verse 35 here in this text as well. In verse 35, Jesus is speaking again here. And Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Friends, this is a scary indictment here. He's, He's appealing to people who've rejected him. Final opportunity, final appeal to them before he retreats and goes to his disciples here. And he says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. The imagery couldn't be more clear that apart from Christ, friends, darkness has already overtaken that person's heart. That's why we use the imagery sometimes of being lost, of being outside of Christ. We do not know where we're going. We cannot find our way to God. And that's the condition of a lot in this particular crowd. Look at verse 37. I mentioned this one last week, but this to me is one of the saddest verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Friends, they had seen a dead man come to life. They had seen miracle after miracle. They had heard authoritative teaching, and they refused to believe in him. And friends, because of their judgment, is going to be great. But friends, again, lest we think this is just something from 2,000 years ago, I'm concerned about people who sit in the pews of churches or the rows of churches week after week after week and have heard the word of God week after week after week and they refuse to believe in it. Those people's judgment is going to be very strong as well because they have rejected the words of Jesus week after week after week after week. This is where the text gets a little bit harder and challenges us and pushes us a little bit out of our comfort zone. Why, Why don't they believe? Why do they remain in darkness and not run to the light when the light is right there before them. Well, John's going to answer that, probably not in the way we want him to answer that, but he's going to answer it by going back to prophecies from Isaiah. And we'll see these two things that he points to to explain why they remain in darkness, why they're so repulsed by these polarizing words of Jesus. Let's start in verses 37 and 38. This is the first prophecy he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53 here. But John chapter 12, verse 37, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that, the reason for this, is that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Friends, the arm of the Lord is God's power being shown. And he's saying, but why are people not believing this? Why have they seen these miracles and choose not to believe? Well, it says there in the the verse 38, because the arm of the Lord has not been revealed to them. That's what is implied in this. How can that be? Well, context helps here. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. If you think of Isaiah 53 and that comes to mind, that's a passage about the suffering servant. It's the prophecy of the Messiah. And I want you to hear Isaiah 53 to try to help us understand what's going on in this particular text here. And so we'll have the words on the screen. But Isaiah chapter 53, let's start in verse 1. As I'm reading this, remember what the people were looking for. Remember the palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were looking for a political savior. They're looking for a political Messiah. They didn't care about the spiritual side of it. They wanted to be delivered from Rome. And so that's what they're looking for. And this is who God gives them instead. And see if you think their hearts can be drawn to a Messiah like this. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, there's the prophecy that John has just cited in here. Now look at where it goes. Verse 2. For he, this is a reference to Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Sound like a Messiah they're looking for? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Friends, that is who Jesus gave them and that is not who they were looking for at the time. They had in their mind um, who they want as Messiah. And when the Isaiah 53 promised Messiah comes, they want nothing to do with him because they're looking for a Messiah of their own imagination, not for who he really is. But again, it gets a little bit harder in our text in John chapter 12 of what's going on here. Pick back in verses 39, <coughs> excuse me, through 41. This is the second prophecy from Isaiah that John's going to cite to explain why there's, the, the people's hearts are so hard and they don't believe. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, let me be honest. Can I satisfy everyone's thoughts about this verse in a few minutes today? No. We can talk about it and be faithful to the text on this one, but this is something that can stretch us a good bit. This, and particularly verse 40 here about God blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts. This is a prophecy also from the book of Isaiah. This goes back to Isaiah chapter 6. And so again, we need context to understand what's going on. Isaiah 6 is the amazing passage that we, we preach at the beginning of it a lot and don't go much past the first few verses of it. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the passage that begins within the year that King Uzziah died and Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple and you see the seraphim flying, covering their faces with two wings and covering their feet with two wings and flying with two wings and all these beings are on the throne shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you know, we're drawn to that because this is an incredible picture of heaven. Then we get to the part that we like to preach in mission sermons on this where Isaiah cries out or God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah goes, here am I, send me. And so we stop right there because, wow, we got this great sermon on the glory of God. We got a great sermon on who's going to go to the mission field. The problem is we stop, and that's not the whole prophecy. That's not the whole insight into what's going on. And so what John is citing here to explain the hardness of people's heart and the unbelief here comes from the same chapter, Isaiah 6. And so I want us to see it starting in verse 8. Again, this is in the context of after the seraphim have been flying around the throne, Isaiah sees all this, and this is where it picks up in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Stop there. We like that part, right? That's the part that we use to challenge people to, to go get them for Jesus. But this is what God says here. Verse 9. And he said, go and say to the people. Oh, good. Here's what God's going to tell them to say, right? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, eye, their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their ear, their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, this is Isaiah, how long, O Lord? And he, this is God speaking now, said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. It's not an easy text, is it? What's going on here in this one? Friends, we measure success so often by numeric things. And God is saying, Isaiah, you're ready to go, great, here's my calling for you. 
You're going to go preach to people whose hearts are hard and no one's going to respond, but go do it anyway. And success is measured for Isaiah not in terms of numeric growth and conversions. Success is measured by faithfulness to proclaim to a people who God has said will not believe. And Isaiah's words, the words of God that God is speaking through him, will ultimately be something that God uses to judge the people in this particular context. So Isaiah is calling a faithfulness to proclaim words of judgment to a people who will not believe. Friends, this is what John is citing here for us in John 12 to explain to us why the people do not believe. What do we do with all that? Well, friends, basically what we do with all that, and there's a lot we could wrestle with, was, but realize when we see this talking about God hardening their hearts and God blinding their eyes, it reminds us that God is absolutely sovereign. But beyond that, friends, we need to realize God is giving the people just what they want. When we think about God hardening hearts and blinding people, we don't, this is not a picture of a group of Sunday school kids sitting around singing Amazing Grace and God being like, I'm hardening you, I'm blinding you. No. This is a group of people who are shaking their fist at God going, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And God goes, okay, fine, have it that way. And God blinds them and hardens them in their unbelief. He leaves them where they want to be. This idea of Romans 1 of God giving them over, God giving them up to what they want to do on this. Friends, they did not want a Messiah who was going to be lowly what we saw from Isaiah 53. They didn't want a suffering servant Messiah. They wanted God who was going to deliver them from their own oppression of Rome. They didn't want an Isaiah 6 God who was going to be a God who was going to be glorified above all else where everything is about his glory. They wanted a God who was going to be all about them. And so God leaves them right where they are and gives them exactly what they want. And friends, it is no different today. People still have in their mind an image of what they want God to be and who they want God to be. And when the God of the Bible doesn't line up with that, they say, I don't want anything to do with them. And God blinds them and hardens them and leaves them in their unbelief. He doesn't push them there. They're already there. We're all born there. He just gives them what they are wanting. And that's, in fact, what I believe happens in back in John chapter 12 with the religious leaders of verses 42 and 43. Now, let me say, people interpret this differently. So if your interpretation is different than mine, that's okay. This is how I understand verses 42 and 43. I think it's what's going on here with the hardening of the hearts here. Verse 42. Nevertheless... Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogues. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We've seen throughout John where he's referred to people's belief, and then we quickly see that's not real belief. That's a pretense. That's an external belief. I believe that, again, not everyone agrees with me on this, but this is what I believe is happening here. These are people who give some type of indication. They're fascinated by this God who does these miracles, and so they kind of believe, but it's not a belief that changes them. They ultimately don't love God's glory. This is back to Isaiah 6. They want their own glory. They want the glory that comes from men. They do not want to see the God for the glory that he really has. And so therefore they do not believe. And I believe here it's just the case of the blinding and the hardening where Jesus' words were polarizing and drove them into darkness. They wanted nothing to do with the Messiah like, Jesus's, like Jesus was and is. So friends, Jesus' words either repel us in the darkness or draw us to the light. That's been the heavy side of it, the being pushed in the darkness. But there's another path that's set before people here. And that is Jesus' polarizing words not only for some push them in the darkness, for some it does draw them to his light. Look at verse 46 again. We looked at it earlier, but let's see the other side of the equation here. Verse 46. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Friends, though we are naturally in darkness, there is a way out of the darkness. We do not have to remain in the darkness. And that is to look to Christ, to believe in him, to believe he is the light, to see him for who he really is. And friends, if by God's grace we see him for who he is and we believe, look at what happens. Go back up to verses 35 and 36. 
there's hard passage in here. Verses 35 and 36 is just glorious and beautiful for us. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. You may become sons of light. Do you notice the appeal Jesus is making here to these people? They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They've heard truth after truth after truth. And one last time, final words before he withdraws his disciples to get ready for his crucifixion. He says, believe, believe. The light is still here. Believe, walk in the light, become sons of light. Friends, there is a way out of the darkness that we're all born into. And that is belief in Christ. Now, again, realize how belief is ascribed. We equate belief sometimes with intellectual knowledge and the externals of church membership. That's not how belief is described in this text. Again, verses 35 and 36, he talks about it two different times. Verse 36, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light. But in verse 35, he describes it a little bit different. The light is among you for a little while longer. He doesn't say believe while you have the light, but he says walk while you have the light. Like we've seen all throughout John, walk and believe are used synonymously for belief. Belief is not just intellectual. True saving belief will change everything about us to where he can say walk. This is an imperative. It means continuous action. It means walk and keep on walking. Friends, if we really believe, we really believe and keep on believing, we're going to walk and keep on walking. It's going to change our daily life if we really are in Christ. That's what we've seen all throughout John, that belief is a radical transformation from above. It's us falling in love with the glory of God. It's us submitting all of our life to him. <coughs> and friends, if we do that by God's grace and God's work in our life, and look at verse 36, what happens to us. While you have the light, believe in the light, that, so that you may become sons of light. That's where become means once for all completed action in the Greek. That means not through your effort, but when you believe God's work in your life becomes something in you. You become something, not because of you, but at a point in time that you believe, God does something to you. And what does he do? He makes you a son of light. Son of was an, is a common idiom expression at the time that meant to be characterized by something. So he's not saying your physical son here. It means you're characterized by something. If you believe in the light, believe in Christ, you become something. God's working in you. You become a son of light. You're one who's characterized by light. Again, friends, true belief changes us. It doesn't leave us where we are. And if we really are believing in Christ, walking in Christ, we will look more and more like the light of Christ ourselves. Jesus' words will either repel us in the darkness or draw us into the light, and that light will then change us. Well, friends, this truth also reminds us of something else very serious here that I alluded to earlier. And that's back in verse 46, that we begin in darkness. We remain in darkness unless something happens to us. So, friends, as we come to a close, I want to remind us, we don't get out of a state of darkness with a half-hearted approach to Jesus' words. Jesus' words are polarizing. We can shrug our shoulders about politicians and who's right and who's wrong. We can shrug our shoulders about football or basketball or whatever sport it is and who's going to win and whether the coach should come or go and it not make a difference. But friends, we can't shrug our shoulders about what Christ has called us to do. He says, you are in darkness and you will remain there unless you believe and walk in me. Friends, those are polarizing words. We either believe him for who he is and we find him or <coughs> excuse me, we don't believe him for who he is we don't treasure his words, and we remain in the darkness no matter how religious and involved at church we may be. Because I think there's a serious warning for us here in this. Because so many people, I'm convinced, think they're somewhere in the middle. That they can kind of have one foot in faith and one foot in the world. 
kind of a half-hearted Christianity, a half-hearted following of Jesus, a half-hearted being sold out for him. But really, friends, we can't do that. We're either in darkness and remaining in darkness, or we're in the light, walking in the light, and becoming sons of light. There is no biblical middle category for a kind of half-hearted Christian. There's no category here for someone who has one foot in following God and one foot in living for themselves and the pleasures of the world. But I think a lot of people have that mindset. And with that in view, in light of what we're seeing about we're either remaining in darkness or we're in the light, I think it's fitting to look just for a few verses of the book of Revelation chapter 3. Because as we're looking at the, at the book of Revelation, chapter 3, God is speaking to the church at Laodicea. And he speaks to a group that thinks they can kind of have it both ways. They can kind of do with Jesus' words, kind of a middle shrugging your shoulders approach to it. Of not being sold out for Jesus, but not living worldly carnally. They think they can kind of be somewhere in the middle, I think like a lot of us today can struggle with. So look at what, G, what God says to this group about their kind of middle category of kind of they're shrugging their shoulders towards Jesus and his words. Starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you realize what God does here? There's a group of people who thinks they're not, they don't have to be sold out to the light, but they don't want to be in the world either. They, think, they kind of found this happy middle of the road to where my faith is enough to keep me from going to hell, but my faith is not real enough to make me passionate about Jesus' words. And God says, pick one or the other. I wish you were one or the other, but if you stay in the middle... I'm going to spit you out. If you want to keep that middle category, I'll redefine that middle category for you. And that's the darkness category. There is no staying where we are. With that being said, Matt Chandler, who wrote a great book called The Explicit Gospel, said this. And these are, I think, good closing words for us as we look at our hearts. He said, nobody can really attend church as though it's a hobby. To do so does not reveal partial belief, but reveals hardness. And read that again. Nobody can really attend church as though it's a hobby. To do so does not reveal partial belief, but hardness. He goes on to say, the religious, moralistic, church-going evangelical who has no real intention of seeking God and following him has not found some sweet spot between radical devotion and wanton sin. He's found devastation. Did you hear that? The person who has no real intention of seeking God and following him has not found a sweet spot between radical devotion and sin He's found devastation. The moralism that passes for Christian faith today is a devastating hobby if you have no intention of submitting your life fully to God and chasing him in Christ. The moralism that passes for Christian faith today is a devastating hobby if you have no intention of submitting your life fully to God and chasing him in Christ. Friends, we cannot be half-hearted about Jesus. His words will either repel us in the darkness that we're already in, where they will draw us to the light and we will fall in love with them and we will be becoming sons of light. What is it doing for you? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, I'm thankful that you give us parts of the, your scripture that we just run to because they're so hope-filled for us and just so lighten our burdens. But Lord, I'm thankful you give us hard texts like this. But that was not the text most of us would run to for just our fun readings of your word. Lord, I'm grateful you've given it to us, Lord, because I need this reminder. Lord, we all need this reminder. God, you have not called us to live half-hearted for you. 
God, you have called us to love your glory above all else. You've called us to live for you above all else. You've not called us to stick one foot in the world and one foot in the church. God, you have called us to fall in love with your words, to see you, Lord Jesus, as the light over all, and to walk in light, to follow you in light so that we become sons of light. Father, would you show me, would you show these precious brothers and sisters, if there are areas in our heart that we are not living for you? Would you show us in your kindness to us before we find devastation? Would you show us if there's areas, God, in our hearts and our lives where we're trying to kind of have it both ways? We're not really wanting the wanton pagan world of sin, but we're also not wanting to be sold out for you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's in that kind of middle place, would you, in the kindness of your Holy Spirit working in their heart, push them to the light, nudge them to the light. If there's anyone in this room who is in darkness, and they know they're in darkness, where there's so many things that can keep us there, pride, like we saw with the Pharisees, the love of the glory of man, maybe some sin that people want to cling to. Well, I don't know what is, but God, would you let them see today that none of that is worth it? That there's nothing that is more glorious than you, nothing worth more than you. Would you today be breaking that hardened heart? And Lord, perhaps the way that the word has hit them over all these years, that clay has been hardened, but today would you let your word hit them in such a way that the ice begins to melt? But Lord, for many in this room who I know, I've seen their lives, I see the fruit of their lives, I see your grace all over them. But would you today remind them that the reason they're in the light is not because they're so smart and wise and figured out when other people didn't. They're in the light because you have made them sons of light. And God, that you have, in your grace, poured out your grace and taken them from darkness and brought them to light, took them from being enemies to being your friends. And God, it's all of you. So Lord, for the believer rooted in you, living for you, would you encourage their heart today? It's your work in their life. Would they be quick to give you praise today for all you've done? And for the person in the middle who's trying to have it both ways, God, today would you let them see that's not possible? Let them put their stake in the ground and follow you. And for the one who's just in the hardened clay, would you melt that today? Or for your glory and for our joy, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song? Who? Mm-hmm.